Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon the generous financial contributions of our listeners in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Uh, Would you please uh, support Fighting for the Faith financially by joining our crew or sending in a donation to uh, support us financially? You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. That's a mere $6.95 a month. Or if you'd like to make a flat contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Thursday, May 19th, 2011. Gasp. It could be, tomorrow could be like our last edition of Fighting for the Faith ever. I mean, if Carol Camping's right, well, (laughs) oh man. I can't even joke about it. You know, it's hilarious. The God Whispers, D'Onofrio, when he sent me his uh, this week's edition of The God Whispers to play on Pirate Christian Radio, Craig Pastor D'Onofrio said, well, Chris, this is our last edition. <laughs> Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and to help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There is no shortage of crazy things being said out there, and as a result of it, you, yeah, you just never know. Uh, you you got to compare what people are saying. It, I don't care if they're a well-known author, uh, a megachurch pastor. In fact, if they are an, uh, a well-known author and a, or a megachurch pastor, you definitely want to do the comparative work. Um <laughs> Chances are that if they were really, truly teaching biblical Christianity, their books wouldn't be as popular as they are nowadays, and their church wouldn't have tens of twenties of thousands of people attending. Now, you know, there's a rumor going around right now. I, I don't know if you've heard the rumor, but the uh, the, the rumor is is that uh, Stephen Furtick tomorrow afternoon is going to be praying a sun stand still prayer in order to uh, prevent the rapture event on Saturday. Apparently, Furtick is not ready for Jesus to come back, and uh, and, and and so he's going to pray an audacious sun-stand-still prayer against uh, the, the rapture on Saturday because he doesn't want Jesus to come back until Elevation Church uh, attendance is at 200,000 people per week, and, uh, and, and he takes over basically the church world, and so... Uh, you know, because it's really all about Stephen Furtick. You know, I, I'm gl- I'm glad though that he's gonna he's he's found a um, how should I say a practical use for his uh, sun stand still prayers. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> I, I, I've re- <laughs> I've received emails from several people, and and actually one person on my Facebook wall today said they've been invited to left behind parties. Now, see, that seems like a worthy thing to do. Uh, you, you know, if if you if you're wondering what to do on Saturday, you're thinking, you know, hey, it's it's supposed to be the end of the world, and uh, and you're you're not sure what to do. Um, 
a, a costume party, uh, you know, with the with the theme of left behind, uh, would probably be a good way to spend your evening. I, I enjoy spending time with friends and family and uh, and you know people and coworkers and stuff like that. And so, you know, I, I personally, I, I I'm not planning on a um a left behind party on Saturday night for myself. But you know, I throw it out there as as a, a, an an option for you. And if any of you are hosting a, a left behind uh, a rapture party. On Saturday in the Greater Indianapolis area, you know, shoot me a note and you know, and uh, let me know. If, and if it's a costume party, all the better. I mean, I I, I might come, you know, I, what would I? Maybe I'll come dressed as hair as uh, William Tapley. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I know I'll come dressed as Rob Bell. Yeah, I, no one will recognize me. I'll go out and buy some really cool hip glasses and some skinny jeans and no everyone will think I look just like him <laughs> yeah I have to paint the skinny jeans on though that might be a little alarming anyway uh let's talk about what we're going to talk about on today's edition of fighting for the faith yeah I got a lot of things I want to cover in the in the first hour I, I didn't get to some of the things I wanted to yesterday and oddly enough I haven't slated them for the front part of this hour so I'm hoping to get to them you know later in the hour we'll see how it goes um but uh, one of the things one of the things you all know that I do is that I um I well I do a lot of research and study on the emergent church and uh, and fascism and, and and similar themes that have to do with the irrational philosophy that's kind of beating in the heart of uh, post modernity and uh, one of the things that the emergent church has you know. Ha- has bristled at the idea of doing, and that is you know, putting forward some kind of a creed. And um, and so what I did here is is you know having, I I think I've read every single book the emergent authors have written. I just you know including some of the lesser known luminaries in their orbit. But um, having spent time at emergent conferences, having listened to emergent lectures, having read just about every emergent book out there, um, you know I have friends who are emergent, and you know and so I have conversations with them, and you know. And I, I've come to the conclusion that um, it, it is now safe to say that one could put together a creed uh, that uh, that represents kind of the rough cut ideas and themes of, uh, of emergent church theology and this new postmodern liberalism. And so I'm gonna I'm gonna be reading to you uh, the my the emergent cre- emergent church creed that I uh, put together today. And, uh, you know, and so we'll take a look at that. I'm going to be um, playing for you audio from Evolutionary Christianity's uh, website uh, from Greta Vosper. Who she is, a, you know, an emergent liberal postmodern type, and she's up in Canada. And uh, she's, she did a, an, a, an interview uh, at the Evolutionary Christianity website. Michael Dowd is the guy who runs that. And um, and it's rather fascinating. It's, it kind of falls into the theme of the emergent church creed thing that I put together. So I I want to play for you snippets of that uh, of that particular um, interview. Well, maybe maybe the first ten minutes of it because I think it's worth passing along in, in the sense that it will it'll really help you see uh, the, that the emergent church is not a form of Christianity. It's actually it's a species of unbelief. And uh, you know, if you if you were to think of believers and unbelievers, P- 
people in the emergent church and emergent postmodern liberals are not a are not a species of Christian belief. They're actually a species of uh, of uh, pagan unbelief. It's a spiritualized version of unbelief that tries to hijack Christian words and terms and and uh, do weird things with them. And so I thought uh, uh, Greta Vosper's interview with Michael Dowd from the Evolutionary Christianity website would be worth passing along. And uh, and then after that, uh, you know, in, in the second half of the first hour, we're going to um, take a look at uh, Albert Muller's piece that he wrote about Harold Camping. And um, and if we have time, we'll talk about Ra'el, as well as uh, uh, you know post rapture pet care. These these are important things you got to you know take in mind if you if you're thinking that you're leaving the planet that you're going to be beamed up uh, to meet Jesus in the clouds on Saturday, then you know, you need to be thinking about such things as like you know who's going to take care of uh, Fido, and uh, and then our sermon review today. I'm going to be reviewing a, um, a sermon from New Spring Church, but it's not from Pastor Perry Noble. It's from a special speaker that he had uh, speak there uh, recently, and uh, the name of the uh, sermon is The Principle of Multiplication, and uh, the uh, the person delivering this particular sermon is, uh, is the guy who is the, um, well, he's the head pastor of that Gateway Church, Robert Morris. Uh, you, know, you know, yesterday we reviewed uh, a sermon uh, from that motivational speaker dude. Um, hang on a second. Let me let me pull up pull this up on my uh, computer real quick we, uh, from uh, John Maxwell, and he was preaching at Gateway Church in South Lake, Texas. Well, Robert Morris recently preached the sermon at uh, New Spring Church, and this is this is really how this guy came to be on my radar. And he he preached a sermon called "The Principle of Multiplication." And it's supposedly a twist-your-arm kind of tithing sermon, and woof, it's bad. It's really, really, really bad. I mean, talk about a major Bible twist and misapplication of Scripture. And so, you know, it, it, once again, it shows that uh, Perry Noble, despite the fact that, uh, you know, I, I, you know, I gave him props a couple weeks ago because it's it's obvious. You know, for you know, past couple of months uh, in the sermons that he's delivered, that uh, he's been engaging in some, let's just say, proper sermon preparation. You know, actually spent some time in commentaries, and and sounds like he's spending a little bit more time properly preparing his sermons. But uh, he still lacks. He still supremely lacks discernment. And uh, by having uh, Robert Morris preach this really twisted sermon at New Spring Church on the principle of multiplication, um, it, it shows you that uh, he still um, <clears throat> needs to uh, be thinking in biblical terms and not just hand his pulpit over to anybody, especially somebody like Robert Morris. And after you hear the sermon, you'll understand exactly what I'm talking about. So with that, we're going to dive into the program proper. Oh, yeah. Times have changed, and we've often rewound the clock since the Puritans got the shock when they landed on Plymouth Rock. If today any shock they should try to stamp, instead of landing on Plymouth Rock, Plymouth Rock would land on them. 
in olden days. A glimpse of stocking, one of them dolphins, something shocking, but now God knows. Anything goes. That's right. Yeah, this is... <laughs> it means we're doing an emergent church update. That's what it means. Anything goes. Yeah, I'm, I, I obviously I haven't missed my calling. Um, <laughs> yeah, I should not be singing. Anyway, um, <laughs> all right. So uh, for those of you who uh, want to, you know, want a thumbnail sketch of what it is the emergent church really believes, what is postmodern quote Christianity all about? This the mixing of so-called Christian themes and uh, postmodern uh, epistemology and irrational philosophy. Well. At the end of the day, you know, now that I mean, seriously, the emergent church came on the scene early in what, two thousand and one, two thousand and two. That's when it came out as a product, you know, uh, from the uh, folks over at Leadership Network, and as well as you know, they were working with uh, uh, the Purpose Driven Network, uh, Rick Warren, as well as Bill Hybels, in kind of hatching uh, this. Post this product that was supposed to take Christianity and and contextualize it for a postmodern culture and postmodern way of looking at things. The problem is is that postmodernity, uh, as a philosophy, as an epistemology, isn't compatible with reality, let alone uh, Christianity. As a result of it, when you mix postmodernity and Christianity, you don't end up with Christianity. You end up with postmodern nonsense uh, uh, shrouded in Christian terms. And so, you know, many people have been wanting a creed, some kind of an outline. What is it that the folks in the uh, emergent church believe? Well, you know, being one of the experts out there on the emergent church, I've, well, I've put it down. And I, I followed kind of the outline of the Apostles' Creed, you know, dealing with creation, Jesus, and redemption, and things like that. And so, you know, with three major sections of the creed itself. And this is now the emergent church creed. And, and see if you think that this is accurate. Here we go. Um, I believe, but not with absolute certainty, in, in a majestic, mysterious, divine being who cannot be comprehended, who is the initiator of Darwinian evolution, and in Jesus, whom we agree to follow with a humble hermeneutic, who was conceived by the mother spirit, also known as Sarayu from the shack, born of Mary, who, who probably wasn't a virgin, but it really doesn't, really wouldn't matter if she was or wasn't a virgin, that's not the point who was crucified under Pontius Pilate in order to expose the evils of the Roman Empire and motivate us to defect from all imperial framing stories. On the third day, he, she, rose in the hearts of his, her followers, getting hung up on modernist arguments for or against Jesus' bodily resurrection entirely misses the point in the beauty of the resurrection narratives. He, she, ascended into heaven, and he, she, is dreaming and hoping that will follow his or her examples of feeding the poor, embracing the other, uh, and nonviolent passive resistance, and thereby dismantle the theocapitalist suicide machine and create an economically sustainable and socially just kingdom of God here on earth, also known as global Marxist socialism, so that he, she, can return, glorify us, and give us all a big group hug. I believe the mysterious divine being embraces all of us in community through questions and conversations. 
Answers are not needed and only impede the journey. Homosexuality is a gift to be embraced instead of a sin to be repented of, and that there are also followers of God in the way of Allah, Buddha, and Vishnu. I believe that love wins and that the divine being will ultimately help us all embrace the divine spark, otherwise known as the Imago Dei, within all of us, so that we can become one with the great mysterious majestic spirit and experience self-actualization, the next evolutionary leap, and the life of the ages. Peace out. Yeah, so that, that, I that's um, that's you know the emergent church creed, and uh, you know, and, and I've put that together after spending literally years and years studying and reading and researching uh, emergent theology and themes, and I, and I think that's a fair representation of what they, uh, well, assert, kind of suggestively assert in their uh, in their conversations. So. Well, what do you think? I'd love to get your feedback. All right. Moving along here, we're going to be unveiling um, the song that we're going to be using for both Biologos updates as well as Evolutionary Christianity updates. And uh, this is—a lot of you have made suggestions, and i got to tell you, they were all fantastic and wonderful. And it was very difficult to uh, find the—well, the, to, to select one of them because so many of them were really good. But this is ultimately the one that we've come—we've— um, come to um, decide we'll be using for Biologos updates as well as Evolutionary Christianity updates. And since we're going to be doing an Evolutionary Christianity update right now, well, it's time for us to unveil the song. Here we go. Yeah, that's the Beach Boys, the Monkey's Uncle. And the Monkey's Uncle, they for me. All right, yeah, that was uh, Beach Boys with Annette Funicello there uh, singing along with them. The Monkey's Uncle, yeah. <laughs> Man. All right, uh, yeah, so l- l- well, let me set this up. This is kind of going with my uh, theme here. Michael Dowd in his Advent of Evolutionary Christianity, Conversations at the Leading Edge of Faith is what he calls it. It's more like conversations, uh, conversations at the leading edge of unbelief. Um, at the bleeding edge of doubt, um, rather than faith. I mean, this is ridiculous. You know, you know the way these folks think. But I think this this goes along with uh, this goes a long way towards what I was um, pointing out in the emergent church creed that I put together. And so uh, this is a conversation between Michael Dowd and a gal by the name of Greta Vosper. And what I'll do is I will let Michael Dowd do the introductions. And in the introduction, pay close attention to why he thought it would be great to have Greta Vosper uh, on this website that's promoting evolution and Christianity, supposedly. But uh, listen in. 
Welcome to episode 28 of the Advent of Evolutionary Christianity, Conversations at the Leading Edge of Faith. I'm Michael Dowd, and I'm your host for this series, which can be accessed at evolutionarychristianity.com. Today, Greta Vosper is our featured guest. Greta is the founder of the Canadian Center for Progressive Christianity. She currently leads the West Hill United Church in Toronto, Canada, and her best-selling book, With or Without God, Why the Way We Live is More Important Than What We Believe. Whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> oh, man. Why, the way, we be- uh, why the, the way We Live is More Important Than the Way We Believe, or What We Believe. Hmm, okay. Like I said, these folks are not on, this is not Christian faith. This is all about, uh, this is a species of unbelief. Leave made Amazon's list of top 25 books that caused a commotion. She advocates, among other things, that the Bible is not the authoritative word of God for all time and encourages churchgoers to drop dogmatic beliefs and to cultivate a heart for the well-being of all life. Now, I'm going to point something out here. When you hear somebody talking like that, that they, you need to drop dogmatic beliefs and you know cultivate some kind of love for all of all kinds of life and stuff like that, isn't that a dogmatic belief? Yeah, when somebody says you know do, dogmatic doctrine is wrong and you need to just focus on, on on loving people, isn't that a dogmatic belief that doctrine is wrong and that love is somehow the truth? You, you understand what I'm saying here? Over and again, when you look at, if you just apply a little bit of thought, you understand that these people are engaging in a a, a pee and shell game, if you would. They're they're engaging in in word play and word games. And if you apply their uh, their rules and ideas to their own thoughts, then the whole thing comes crumbling down. It's okay for them to be dogmatic about their insistence that dogma is wrong, and it doesn't matter. But it's wrong for you to insist that dogma is right. You get what I'm saying? It's a complete double standard. And you really, just a little bit, just to, you know, make some effort. Burn a couple of brain cells if you need to. But, I mean, the whole thing comes crumbling in on itself because it's self-defeating. Let's continue. Here we discuss beyond God, becoming what we believe in. Beyond God, becoming what we believe in. This is all part of... This is the Christianity that's supposed to emerge as a result of embracing evolutionary theory. I, okay. Hello, Greta Vosper, and thank you for joining this conversation on evolutionary Christianity. Michael, it's wonderful to be part of this project. I'm excited for you to be joining us, Greta, in part because you're one of the few Christian thinkers and actors in the world who get a warm reception, not only from fellow religious people, but also from non-religious people and even sometimes religious skeptics. But even before we go there, I'd love for you to just share some of your own, your faith journey. How did you come to where you are now, theologically or philosophically? I am a minister in the United Church of Canada, and that's the church I was born into. Uh, She's a pastrix, okay. Into and have grown up in. And I think that has framed a lot of who I am and the message that I have and the leadership that I am able to offer to a congregation here in Toronto. Growing up across the street from the church, our relationship with the church was a close one. My parents were both involved 
But I was going through Sunday school at a time that the church was introducing new ideas. And so the curriculum I used or that was being used when I was in Sunday school was the notorious new curriculum. Now, I say notorious because the United Church of Canada had been working closely with other denominations, partly the Baptist Church, in working on resources. But at the time the new curriculum came in, there was a hue and cry against it. It presented the Bible as a collection of stories that had been written to help us understand faith, to come to new understandings about God that were more in keeping with contemporary scholarship that was being read and taught in theological colleges between the 30s and the 50s. And this curriculum came out early in the 1960s. It taught about Jesus as being a model for our behavior, for living in right relationship, for being good, taught about God as love. Those were concepts that in many mainline denominations was still not, they were still not very welcome. But that's that's the milieu in which I grew up. And so I have a, an understanding of God that was very broad, even as, as a young child. Mm-hmm. When I hit theological college, uh, which was a second career option for me, I learned that all those things that that I had learned while I was growing up were ones that were now going to be offered to me in an academic setting. So at Theological College, I was able to really steep myself in that contemporary scholarship that had informed the creation of the new curriculum and that brought me into contact with scholars that had very progressive understandings. So go from Theological College into a typical United Church congregation and uh, go about the work that that I was doing and enjoyed it very much and was in leadership in the church for just about 10 years when I had the opportunity to be in conversation with a number of different congregations, many congregations, in a conversation that was focusing them on their core values and core beliefs. It took about a two-year period to go through about 20-some-odd congregations with this project. And at the end of it, when I looked at it, I was astounded that even the people that I was ministering to and those that my colleagues who had been trained in the same kind of colleges were leading – that many of the people in those congregations, unless they had some of their own theological education, they hadn't got that contemporary scholarship even existed. They still believed in a very uh, supernatural interventionist understanding of God as a being. (laughs) Now listen to what she just said. Let me, let me read Notice that she's, she said that she is, well, she's enlightened. She's come under the influence of contemporary progressive scholarship. And you know, she was working on a project where she was in conversation with different congregations, and she was shocked at the number of people in these congregations who believed in a supernatural interventionist God. And that they that the people there were hanging on to this idea of God when Obviously, if they had just been enlightened enough to come under the influence of new, enlightened, progressive scholarship, they they would these these ideas would they would jettison them, jettison them, and abandon them in favor of these new progressive ways of thinking. Uh huh. Yeah. By the name. Um. Yeah. The name of this speech, by the way, this this conversation is beyond God becoming what we believe in. Let's continue. So, by the way, before I continue, 
pausing myself before I pause again. But uh, you know, here's the deal. This, this is the Christianity, and I'm putting that in air quotes, that these guys envision. Once we embrace evolution as a theory, this is the Christianity that we get, which is no Christianity at all. This is a species of unbelief. Let's continue. They still believed that Jesus was the only son of God, that he had died for their sins, though they couldn't really articulate maybe what that meant. And she thinks this is bad, by the way. And it was very, very elementary. Uh, And I don't use that word disparagingly because I I use it merely in that in our elementary classes in church, those are the things that many people had learned, but none had really moved beyond that unless they had actually intentionally done so. So I was flabbergasted because... Yeah, imagine an entire church in the United Church of, you know, whatever, there in... (laughs) People believing Jesus is God and he's supernatural and he died on the cross for their sins. (laughs) Got to get rid of that. Had been speaking about contemporary scholarship in most of my most of my preaching, most of the interchanges that I had with members of my community. And I couldn't understand why people hadn't actually heard what it was I was saying. (laughs) Maybe because what you were saying didn't make any sense with the Bible. Maybe you were trying to read the Bible at the same time. So I went back to my to my congregation and, and sort of thought, oh, I've got to figure this out. And the next Sunday started our service with a call to worship and a prayer of approach and, and uh, sang hymns that spoke about Jesus being the light of the world and, and God reigning over all creation. And it was so obvious suddenly. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah, because you know what le- what little was left of the liturgy and the hymns you were singing still reinforced all of those old ideas that uh, postmodern scholarship has so so easily gotten rid of. You know why people weren't getting it. I was spending twenty twenty five minutes every Sunday. You know, reading a lectionary passage, explaining to people the context out of which that lectionary passage had grown, who had written it, why they'd written it, what the socioeconomic situation was, the political situation, the players, and why none of that had any connection with what was going on in our world right now. Or if it did, picking up from that point and, and, mm-hmm. and jumping off into something else, but usually just pulling in the last two or three minutes some metaphor that I could use to make sense of it. But I'd really missed what was going on entirely, and so that was when I realized I couldn't lead that way anymore. I couldn't. I couldn't be in leadership in the church if what I was doing was merely deconstructing scripture and reconstructing it in a way that really wasn't making it any more meaningful for people. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because the job of a pastorix is to deconstruct scripture. I mean, just listen to the. You know, Listen to what she's saying, and I mean, it, it, I mean, it's a, it's not a good thing that there's these people who believe that Jesus is supernatural and died on the cross for their sins, and they sing these songs that still have vestiges of that kind of thinking, and 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 she spends twenty minutes in a homily deconstructing scripture and trying to, you know, teach them something else, and and still people are believing that Jesus died for their sins. Ugh. So that's that's really where this project began was in the sense that I was not 
offering the people that I was serving everything that I could. Yeah, yeah. Wow. I've got to ask you to continue because I think a lot of ministers are in that place. Daniel Dennett, the philosopher, the new atheist philosopher, um, published a a survey of... Notice Michael Dowd is positively quoting a new age philosopher at this moment. This is what happens when you mix evolution and Christianity. ...of ministers who no longer believe in any of the otherworldly supernatural stuff in a literal way and are struggling with their faith. It's really an amazing study. I'll, I'll link it in my blog post to this conversation. But I think you're speaking the heart and the experience of so many ministers, and yet what I want to ask is, okay, what happened next? Like, where did you go next? Yeah, tell us, how did you solve this problem of all these people believing in a supernatural God and a Jesus who died for their sins? Uh-uh. Well, I did read that that article, uh, the work that Dennis had done, and part of me as I read it mourned the situation that many of those people find themselves in. Yeah, we got to mourn for the people who believe that Jesus is supernatural and died for their sins. Got to mourn those folks, oh, those poor, poor souls. I am so privileged to be in a community that when I went to them, and it would be 10 years ago now that I went to them and said, I can't do this anymore, and these are the reasons why. And they said, okay, so where are we going? And I said, I haven't got the foggiest notion where we're going. <laughs> yeah, so she's going to strike out on her own to, you know, to solve that big, terrible problem in the church of people who believe in a supernatural interventionist God who died on the cross for their sins. Because I didn't. I mean, yeah. I, I just knew that I needed to have some more integrity and needed to bring what I believed together with what I was trying to create in that community. And so... so what she believed, okay. They, you know, held their hand out and said, okay, let's go. And and we walked into this unknown territory together. So I have been very fortunate to work with an incredible group of people who every time we've taken a look at, at the horizon and seen things that looked scary and and frightening have said, you know, well, we can't go back that way. So let's just keep going. And so that has created a very safe place for me to be able to do this work and, and the kind of place that I that I wish for all my colleagues who live that life of dissonance. We initially began looking at who we were and, and wanting to articulate a statement of faith because we knew that they're going now. So she's striking out on her own and they are going to articulate a statement of faith. This isn't the faith once delivered to the saints. No, no, that's got to go because it involves a supernatural interventionist God who died on the cross for their sins and rose bodily from the grave. No, 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 no. So they're going to strike out on their own, and 2,000 years after Christianity has begun, they are going to create their own statement of faith. I mean, the hubris here is beyond belief. Do that. We didn't we didn't believe the traditional stuff like many of us already. There had been a book study at, active in that congregation for about 20 years at that point in time. And Yeah, got to get rid of the traditional stuff. Yeah, that's that's got to go. Looked at a number of progressive contemporary theologians work, John Spong and, and John Dominic Crossan and, and Marcus Borg. Yeah, Spong, Borg and Crossan, the unholy trinity of unbelief. Okay. All of those had been studied some years before in that congregation by a core group of people, certainly not all the 
the congregation. They knew the Bible wasn't the authoritative word of God for all time, and so they were ready to explore the implications of that. Mm-hmm. Okay, so they're going to explore the impl- – they've come to the conclusion that the Bible is not the authoritative word of God for all time, and now they're willing to explore the implications of this profound spiritual truth. Did God really say? No, he didn't say that. It didn't mean it. It doesn't apply today. So we've got to strike out and make our own – forge our own faith. Okay. Because mm-hmm. once you say that, ooh, there's an awful lot that we do that rests on that belief. So yeah. you take that belief away, and, and what do we have, and what are we working with? So they wanted to sort of put a, a, a stake in the ground and say, okay, this is what we believe. And it was a very pragmatic choice to do so. If I had left and gone somewhere else, they didn't want to, to be taken back to some more traditional, more conservative understanding. So we sat down at the table and and thought that we would start that process. But as soon as we did, one of the first things that someone wanted to put in it was, okay, we don't believe the Bible is the authoritative word of God for all time. So that's their first first article of faith. That's not an article of faith. That's an article of unbelief. Okay. Well, as soon as we wrote that down, we realized, well, there would be people in our community who might think that. And then it was, well, who do we think Jesus is? And as soon as we wrote something down, we thought, oh, there are people in our community who might think that. So we realized that we were doing what every statement of faith down through the history of humanity has ever done, and that's draw a line in the sand. Oh, yeah, those statements of faith, they draw lines in the sand. So you, know, you, know, you can't do that because then everyone will see, uh, and it'll, it'll ostracize some people. So we want to find a way to embrace everybody. That means get rid of dogma, get rid of belief altogether. Let's find a different thing that we can unite around. Mm-hmm. And, and we didn't want to do that. So we wrestled with it a little bit more, and we talked a little bit, and we really recognized that what we wanted to do was be like some of those very early Christian communities. that were- uh, yeah, No, no, no. The early Christian communities actually had pretty clear statements of faith. Uh, you want to see a clear statement of faith, uh, read 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Read the Gospels themselves. Those were clear documents. And Gnosticism and the the Galatian heresy were all put down in the the apostolic era. I mean, the the Gospel of John is written against the Gnostic heresy. And, And John himself says, These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. And he specifically goes out of his way to tell stories about Jesus that are contra Gnosticism. Yeah, we got a very earthy Jesus there against the heresy of Gnosticism. And then you've got the Apostle Paul in the book of Galatians literally, literally saying that the Galatian heresy is a different gospel and that it's anathema. So notice what she's doing here. Oh, we want to go back to the early Christian communities where they didn't have dogma and stuff like that. No, no, no. The early Christian communities, the the early early Christianity had very deep, profound, and black and white dogma that were called Christian in a very derogatory way because they lived differently than the people around them because they placed values that they that they uh, held. This is a progressive myth, by the way. Held uh, in high esteem. They placed those values at the center of their communities, and they tried to live up to them no matter what the cost. And we recognized that what we wanted to do was really be able to be identified as, as people who lived according to 
some values that were really hard to live up to, but that we were going to mm-hmm. struggle with. And so we, we wrote instead another document that we called Vision Works. And that document has been what has really formed this work, given it uh, form in, in these intervening years. That document was first celebrated by the community in 2004. In 2009, it was rewritten by a group, and, and I had nothing to do with the rewriting of it and sort of waited in with fear and trepidation for what they were going to come up with because I knew it was going to stretch us and, and it, and it does. I mean, we are stretched by that, by that work and by the, the ideals and the values that we say we want to live by. And yeah. so once we had, yeah. Okay. Um, 10 commandments, uh, those express some pretty clear values that God has called us to live by. Hmm. Do you hold those? Is that is that what you're talking about? Not murdering, stealing, committing adultery, uh, lying, bearing false witness—you know things like that. That there's only one God. You know, th- you know, th- th- values like that. Where did you get your values from? Are we to hold to those dogmatically? What if somebody decides to live by a different set of values? Is that okay? I mean, like Hitler. I mean, Hitler lived by a completely different set of values, and he made a difference in the world. He had a different vision for the world. I mean, are, are his values any less valuable than your values? I mean, and if if so, why? If not, why not? You know. Once we had that first document in place, then whenever someone in the community raised a question about something that we were doing, uh, we would take it to that document, which represented our choices. Notice it didn't represent what God has revealed in His Word, because their first assumption is is that the Bible is not the authoritative Word of God. So these are their value choices. Hmm. And we would measure it against what we had said we wanted to be like. And What about Sparta? You remember Sparta? I mean, they, they were kind of a warrior culture. Do you think they had good values? I mean, they would put to death, you know, female children and, you know, and, and weak or sick children. You know, they engaged in infanticide on quite a level there. Um yeah, you know, those were the values that they chose. Were those good values to have, or you know, is can we just pick any old values that we want, and, and it doesn't matter? God doesn't care. And if it needed to be changed or removed entirely from the community's uh, celebrations or or its actions, then we did that, and that was where the real change started yeah. to happen and yeah. being in the community. Yeah, so anyway, <laughs> that's just the first quarter of that particular conversation, but I wanted you to hear it because uh, those who are advocating a merging of Christianity and evolutionary theory, Darwinian evolution, this is the Christianity that they're really advocating for. Um, uh, the Bible's gone. It is not. Uh, it is not an authoritative word from God that's binding today. And uh, you've got to get rid of all dogma. And what you're left with is, as a community, picking those values that are important for you to celebrate and and practice together in community. Doesn't that sound great? <sighs> yeah, it just makes my head want to explode. Anyway, um, we are up on our first break. If you would like to uh, email me. Regarding anything that you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. 
Relevance Schmelevance. We preach Christ crucified for our sins. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Python's Flying Circus Church. You're listening to the Emergence Sports Network here on Pirate Christian Radio. You've tuned in just in time to catch today's Emergence Ball match between the Pomo Bombers and the Majestic Mystics. Today's match is proudly brought to you by Rex Quando's Bible Pants. There's the buzzer, and they're off. McLaren dribbles a pigskin down to first base, takes out his putter, and... Whoa! Jones checks McLaren against the boards, and then passes to Paget in left field. But wait, Bulls Weber is charging from the 10-yard line, and she slam-dunks from the foul line! That's a birdie! The crowd is going wild! When was the last time you saw something like that? I don't think I've ever seen anything like this. Okay, play is resuming. There's Rollins. He serves to Bell. Bell snatches the snitch. And then Hail Mary passes to McLaren. McLaren is in the end zone. Oh, and he slaps it back to third base. Tickle grabs her wicket and then punts one out into center court. It looks like Jones and Padgett are double-teaming Bowles Weber. He doesn't have a shot, so she slices one off into the rough. McLaren is there to make the safety, but Padgett grabs McLaren's face mask and then throws down to second base. What a brilliant save that was. Jones takes out his driver, then sends one out to midfield. Tickle headbutts the ball and then sends it back to McLaren. He vaults over the pummel horse. Oh, and he sticks the landing. Unfortunately, the degree of difficulty wasn't that high, but McLaren racked up seven brownie points. Tickle sets up for the kickoff. But wait, Jones is trying to steal third base. Tickle slap shots the ball back to Bulls Weber, but Jones is safe. He's safe. That means it's going to be third down with 44 meters to the pin. Looks like this match is going to go into sudden death. I'm excited to announce the arrival of our latest book, It's entitled The Sufferings of Jesus Christ for Sinners, a series of sermons delivered by Martin Luther, edited by, well, me, Chris Rosebro. This collection of sermons defines what it means to be Christ-centered and cross-focused. They masterfully deliver both law and gospel so that your sins are brought to light and Christ's sufferings and blood are placarded in order to bring you to repentance and the comforting assurance of God's love, mercy, and forgiveness. Luther's style in these sermons is bold, in-your-face, uncompromising, and and pastoral. These sermons are expository in their delivery and read like a lay-level Bible commentary and are perfect for both devotional as well as theological reading. You can get your copy of The Sufferings of Jesus Christ for Sinners 
a couple of ways. One, visit fightingforthefaith.com, click on the Join Our Crew button, and join our crew anytime between now and the end of May of 2011, and you'll receive an email giving you instructions on how you can download your copy of this wonderful little book. Of course, if you'd like to pay for it without joining our crew, you can do so by visiting piratechristianradio.com forward slash suffering. That's piratechristianradio.com forward slash suffering. You'll see a couple of links whereby you can purchase it, download it, and begin reading it immediately. This is not a book that you're going to want to miss, and this is not the kind of book that sits idly on your, in your library. This is one that you're going to definitely want to read over and again. It's that good. So what are you waiting for? Get your copy today. We're back. Warning, those people who are trying to blend Christianity and evolutionary theory are really, in fact, working for the devil and trying to destroy Christianity. Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions, in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. Currently, uh, we are well, we're in the in a drive to uh, get uh, 350 new subscribers. Uh, well, uh, members of our crew, if you would. And if you're not already a member of our crew, we truly do need your financial support um, and to join our crew. We're about 25% of the way there, and we're more than halfway through the month. You kind of do the math. And uh, the, the idea here is this, is that as our expenses have been increasing, uh, the, the giving, the, the, the number of financial supporters hasn't been keeping pace with it. As a result of it, we're not meeting our budget. And uh, we don't have the ability to uh, to go month after month after month uh, of not meeting our budget because, well, we're, we're a low-budget uh, ministry and uh, we don't keep cash reserves. So uh, without your help, we can't keep doing what we're doing. So simple remedy. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you're going to see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you click on the Join Our Crew button, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month. Now, that's not a lot of money, uh, but you, know, you spread that out over a large portion of people, and, and it, it really it, it, well, it makes it so that we can properly budget our expenses and things like that, and you get what I'm saying. But it's only $6.95. When you join our crew, I'll send you a, a link so that you can download our latest ebook, The uh, Sufferings of Jesus Christ for Sinners, and uh, and there's other perks, uh, discounts on uh, on our T-shirt that we've made available in our uh, uh, in our T-shirt bake sale. You know, think there's and and plus you always you'll always get a copy. You know, when we release a new book, uh, you will get that for free at no well, at no additional charge is the way to put it. So if you're not already supporting us financially, we actually. <laughs> We're kind of, I don't want to sound like I'm panicking. I'm not. I, I, I really believe you all are going to come through. But let's just say that you know, we need your help. So yeah, that's that enough said. If you want to make a one-time contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button. Or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith. And then send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Okay, moving along. From the Huffington Post, headline reads, Judgment Day, How to Protect Your Pets from the May 21st Rapture. Oh, man. 
Uh, with uh, May 21st and the uh, predicted rapture that comes with it quickly approaching, followers of the Christian Ministry Family Radio and Harold Camping's Judgment Day Prophecy are making a, la- uh, are making a few last-minute preparations. One of the most pressing concerns leading up to the impending Day of Judgment will is, will Sparky be okay? Sparky being your pet dog. Not to worry. The folks over at uh, After Rapture Pet Care and... <laughs> The Eternal Earthbound Pets Network have have your furry friend covered. For a small fee, these ad hoc organizations, mostly run by atheists or other non-Christians, promise to care for your pets after the rapture. Sound like a scam? Well, both sites have been accused of exploitation, but each insists it's legitimate service. Let's just say we'll let you be the judge. Oh, man. Um, Yeah, here's what it says. According to the After Rapture Pet Care website, it says, Our administrators and volunteer pet caretakers will do whatever it takes to find and rescue your pets. If your pet has a location ship, they'll they'll use that, or they'll get uh, uh, they'll go to every location you've registered with us. And if your pets are not at one of those locations, they'll search your cars as well as stay in contact with the local pet shelters. If they are unavailable to reach volunteer caretakers in your area for whatever reason, our administrators will communicate with local animal organizations like the Humane Society to advocate for your pet's rescue and care. After after the rapture requires a $10 membership fee over PayPal, while Eternal Earthbound Pets charges $135 per animal. And then again, the Seattle Post-Intelliger points out that uh, the author of the book Heaven, uh, Randy Alcorn, says that pets will go to heaven, so pet protection may not be such a good investment. So, glad to hear that uh, somebody is cashing in on oh, Harold Camping's looniness. Anyway, um... From Albert Muller, uh, his website, uh, albertmuller.com, headline reads, The end is near, the false teaching of Harold Camping. Uh, the church is not to be arrogantly setting dates, but instead to be eagerly waiting for him. Of that we can truly be certain. Harold Camping is now warning the world that the Day of Judgment will begin at about 6 p.m. on Saturday. And by the way, from what I've been able to garner from looking at different websites, just this is me talking, um, it, it sounds like the Campingites believe that at 6 p.m. in whatever time zone you're in, that's when the rapture is going to take place. So uh, those of you just on the other side of the international dateline, you know, th- those of you in New Zealand and Australia, you're going to be raptured first at 6 p.m. your time, and then once 6 p.m. rolls around to you know, the, you know, to Europe and to uh, uh, North America and South America, yeah. So yeah, the idea is, you know, this is going the, the 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 rapture is going to take place in a very orderly fashion, if you would. <clears throat> Muller continues, he says, The 89-year-old founder of Family Radio has made such pronouncements before, most recently in 1994. He now says that he simply miscalculated them, but he is absolutely certain that he has the right calculation now. And you have been warned. Actually, millions of people in America have been warned through Camping's radio program and by means of more than 1,200 billboards his ministry has put up across the nation. Can you imagine the amount of money? That had to take, uh, according to press reports, Family Radio has put up 2,000 billboards in other nations as well. The ad buy on that has just got to be outrageous. Anyway, camping is no stranger to controversy, but this one has caught national and international attention. He was wrong before, but this time he's absolutely certain that he's right. As he told the New York Times magazine, quote, 
God has given so much information in the Bible about this and so many proofs and so many signs that we know it is absolutely going to happen without any question at all. There's nothing in the Bible that God has ever prophesied. There's many things that he's um, prophesied would happen, and they've always and they have always happened. But there's nothing in the Bible that holds a candle to the amount of information to this tremendous truth of the end of the world. I would be absolutely in rebellion against God if I thought anything other than it's absolutely going to happen without any question. Well, yeah, God is going to return. Christ is going to return. That's, I, I have no doubt about that. Um, uh, however, Jesus says he's going to return at a time when people are not expecting him. So that, that lends to me to believe that, well, leads me to believe that, you know, this is, he ain't coming back on Saturday. Anyway, he says, if you know the Bible and this statement confuses you, you are in good company. Harold Camping believes that God has revealed to him the exact dates of biblical events and the timeline of the judgment. He says that God revealed some exquisite proof that enabled him to determine a finished product timeline that ends on May 21st this coming Saturday. As Michael S. Rosenwald of the Washington Post explains, Camping says he came up with this very precise date of May 21st through a mathematical calculation that would probably crash Google's computers. Further, Camping's mathematical formula involves, among other things, the dates of floods, the signals of numbers in the Bible, multiplication, addition, and subtraction thereof, and many have noted that math seems to make sense only to Harold Camping, yet in a strange way... This just serves to affirm camping in his teaching on his website. He states, quote, However, it was not until a very few years ago that the accurate knowledge of the entire timeline of history was revealed to true believers by God from the Bible. This timeline extends all the way to the end of time. During these past several years, God has been revealing a great many truths which have been completely hidden in the Bible until this time when we are so near the end of the world. These true believers turn out to be Harold Camping and his disciples. Others, even professing Christians, will be in big trouble when Saturday comes, he believes. The Christian church has seen this kind of false teaching before. William Miller and his Adventist followers, known surely enough as Millerites, believe that Christ would return on March 21, 1844. In the 1970s, popular Christian preachers and writers predicted that Christ would return on various dates now long in the past. All of this is embarrassing enough, but now we have the teachings of Harold Camping to deal with. Given the public controversy, many people are wondering how Christians should think about this claim. First, Christ specifically admonished his disciples not to claim such knowledge. In Acts chapter 1, verse 7, Jesus says, It's not for you to know the times of the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. In Matthew 24, 36, Christ taught similarly. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. To state the case plainly, these two verses explicitly forbid Christians to claim the knowledge of such dates and times. Jesus clearly taught that the Father has not revealed such dates and timing, but has reserved that knowledge for himself. It is an act of incredible presumptuousness to claim that a human knows such a date or has determined God's timing by any means. Second, the Bible does not contain hidden codes that we are to find and decipher. The Bible has been given to us in order that we might know the truth, and the truth is clearly revealed in its pages. We are not to look for hidden patterns of words, numbers, dates, or anything else. The Bible's message is plain and requires no mathematical computation for its understanding. The claim that one has found a hidden code or system in the Bible as an insult to the Bible as the Word of God. 
Third, Christians are indeed to be looking for Christ to return and seeking to be faith, uh, found faithful when Christ comes. We are not to draw a line in history and set a date, but we are to be about the Father's business, sharing the gospel and living faithful Christian lives. We are not to sit on rooftops like the Millerites waiting for Christ's return. We are to be busy doing what Christ has commanded us to do. In Hebrews 9.28, we are taught that Christ will come a second time to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. That is faithful Christian. That is the faithful Christian response to the New Testament teachings about Christ's coming. The church is not to be arrogantly setting dates, but instead to be eagerly waiting for him. Of that, we can be truly certain. <sighs> anyway, yeah. So, um, now those of you who are tempted to do this, now I tweeted this out earlier today. Um, if you. <laughs> If you want to engage in some prank pranksterism on Saturday, uh, if you have some old clothes that are you know sitting in your closet doing nothing, you know old pairs of pants that maybe don't fit anymore, you know shirts that are out of you know vogue and you know, you know things like that, and maybe even an old pair of glasses that you don't use anymore, and maybe some old beat up shoes. If you really want to have fun on Saturday, what what I strongly recommend doing is you know taking a, a full set of clothes that you know that you don't normally wear. And, you know, and just leaving them out somewhere around town randomly, you know, picking a spot. Uh, one person left on my Facebook wall that the, what they're going to do is they're going to mow their lawn on Saturday and cut a swath, you know, a couple of uh, cut a couple of uh, swaths into their lawn mowing experience and leave the lawn mower running and, and put a pair of, you know, uh, put a set of clothes behind the lawn mower. So I am so tempted to do that. I just, I am. T- <laughs> Have a little fun during the day, but keep this in mind. You need to be there to help pick up the pieces. And, uh, you know, the, the campingites are going to need our help on the 22nd. I predict that none of them are going to be raptured, but Harold Camping will probably mysteriously disappear on May 22nd. Um, you know, with the amount of money he's been spending buying up all of these billboards, I'm sure he has racked up a huge debt. <sighs> anyway, so there you go. All right, we are up on our second break. It'll be sermon review time when we come back. If you would like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We're going to be right back. Oh, man. It's like what not to wear for theology. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough. Of this sissy, pansy, cunning, photo-written music you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Almighty, 
Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. I'm excited to announce the arrival of our latest book. It's entitled The Sufferings of Jesus Christ for Sinners, a series of sermons delivered by Martin Luther, edited by, well, me, Chris Rosebro. This collection of sermons defines what it means to be Christ-centered and cross-focused. They masterfully deliver both law and gospel so that your sins are brought to light and Christ's sufferings and blood are placarded in order to bring you to repentance and the comforting assurance of God's love, mercy, and forgiveness. Luther's style in these sermons is bold, in-your-face, uncompromising, and and pastoral. These sermons are expository in their delivery and read like a lay-level Bible commentary and are perfect for both devotional as well as theological reading. You can get your copy of The Sufferings of Jesus Christ for Sinners a couple of ways. One, visit fightingforthefaith.com, click on the Join Our Crew button, and join our crew anytime between now and the end of May of 2011, and you'll receive an email giving you instructions on how you can download your copy of this wonderful little book. Of course, if you'd like to pay for it without joining our crew, you can do so by visiting piratechristianradio.com forward slash suffering. That's piratechristianradio.com forward slash suffering. You'll see a couple of links whereby you can purchase it, download it, and begin reading it immediately. This is not a book that you're going to want to miss, and this is not the kind of book that sits idly on your in your library. This is one that you're going to definitely want to read over and again. It's that good. So what are you waiting for? Get your copy today. All right, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith Sermon Review time. It's good to be rested myself again. ugly we review it all here at fighting for the faith we're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service today's sermon comes to us via new spring church in anderson south carolina however pastor perry noble is not presiding he will only be introducing and he's going to be introducing robert morris of gateway church in south lake texas This is probably one of the worst Bible twists I've seen in a while. And I see a lot of them. <laughs> this is a five pretzel sermon. That's, uh, that's you know, who, I forget who, it was a, uh, Michael, uh, I can't remember his last name, Laramir. I, yeah, anyway, one of my listeners on my Facebook wall recommended the, uh, the whole pretzel system. This is a five pretzeler. The name of the sermon is uh, More, the Principle of Multiplication. More, the principle of multiplication. And this is a sermon about tithing. Yeah, in fact, I, let me just kill the music here. And, uh, you know, it, it's probably best if I just let you experience it. And 
Have an open Bible. Get your Bible ready. You're, you're going to want to follow along. Again, this is a five pretzel sermon, which basically shows me that uh, Pastor Perry Noble, despite some of the advances that he's been making lately, um, he's been, he's suffered a setback. He obviously uh, is still suffering from uh, a lack of biblical discernment. Uh, you know, I wouldn't let Robert Morris preach to my pets. Um, uh, otherwise, they may not make it through the rapture. But uh, anyway, here's uh, you know, here listen. Here we go. Howdy, do spring. How's everybody doing today on all of our campuses? Isn't it great to celebrate baptism? And man, the reason I'm holding the handheld mic is I'm going to actually wrap the entire message today. So I hope you're ready for that. That is not. Hey, he's joking. He's joking. Not true. That is not going to happen. Hey, big announcement. We just found out Gauntlet is officially sold out. It is full. Um, I mean, people responded. Unbelievable. 1,200 teenagers at Daytona Beach. But if you want to be an adult, Chaperone, those places are not full. And I'm telling you, God will do something unbelievably significant in your life. Um, and they're still, um, you're still able to sponsor gauntlet students. If you still want to do that, you can stop by the gauntlet table. And for those of you that didn't get in, there's, there's a waiting list. And we're, we're you know, because maybe some students will have to cancel or whatever. So we are so pumped up about that trip. And we're so appreciative of the fact that you guys signed up so quickly. Well, um, we're going to continue our more series today. And uh, New Spring, we've got an unbelievable privilege. I met, um, in fact, I read a book, and I'll tell you more about that later. I read a book several years ago by this gentleman named Robert Morris. And I'd never really heard of Robert Morris, but somebody told me, you got to read this book. It's absolutely unbelievable. And I was like, okay. And it was uh, hands down, like I couldn't put the book down. It was unbelievable. I read the book, and I was like, oh, my gosh. So I got to meet this guy. And so um, we flew out last September to meet with him and his entire staff, Robert pastors a church that actually planted in the year 2000, just like New Spring. Um, he plant, they, they, they're, they're near Dallas, Texas, um, running about 16,000 people a weekend. And uh, they just moved into a really nice auditorium. Um, it's a little bit bigger than ours. Um, they, ours this auditorium here in Anderson cost about uh, 12 or $13 million. Um, Their new one costs $84 million. Um, which is what we're projecting for Greenville. And um, we, Charleston, we haven't even got there yet. I mean, if the Dallas Cowboys can build a $1 billion facility, why can't the church? So I'm just saying, I'm just saying. So anyway, we went out. But, but the thing we were not impressed with was the facility. I mean, it's very nice. The thing we were impressed with is that Robert Morris is one of the most genuine, humble, godly men that we've ever met and we were blown away and I, I just I just threw it out there I said I will you know what's so funny is is that you know having listened to a few of his sermons um I I wouldn't put him in the godly category and the reason why is I don't care how humble you are if you twist God's word and make it say things it doesn't say that's not behavior conducive with a man of God that's uh, something different I would love for you to come speak to our congregation in New Spring sometime and tell him your story. And Robert Moore said, I would love to come speak to your congregation. So he flew in last night um, and is, is with us today. So listen, everything's bigger in Texas. Everything's bigger in Texas. So because of that, I want New Spring Church today to put your hands together and give a big South Carolina welcome to my friend Robert Morris. Would you welcome him to the stage? Love you, man. Love you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I'm excited to be at New Spring Church because I've been hearing about New Spring Church for years, and we heard about Perry Noble. My, all my friends would say to me, have you met Perry Noble? 
have you met Perry Noble? Finally, I thought, I don't want to meet Perry Noble. He must be Jesus or something. You know, everyone's asking me about it. But when I met him. Trust me, he, he ate Jesus. I did realize he is a lot like Jesus. He loves the Lord. And I was just, I just fell in love with him. And uh, take it from a guy, I've been in a lot of churches traveling and speaking. Take it from a guy that's been to a lot of churches. Uh, you are very, very blessed to have Pastor Perry Noble here. <laughs> very blessed. So uh, we are grateful to be here. My wife, Debbie, is right down here with me. Turn to uh, Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9. And I want to share with you. Yeah, you're going to want to flip over there. Go to Luke chapter 9. You got your Bible. My life message, I call it the principle of multiplication. And we're going to take a very familiar story in the Bible about the feeding of the 5,000, the fish and the loaves. And we're going to put ourselves in the story and let the Lord speak to us today, all right? So Luke chapter 9. Now here's something. We're going to put ourselves in the story. Already we got a hermeneutical problem here. Um, Hey, now, I've told you that this is a sermon that touches on the topic of tithing, okay? And, um, well, this, the Luke chapter 9 isn't about tithing. Just keep that in mind. I'd like for you to do, would you just for this message, would you, I know it's the first time you've met me and all, but would you uh, forget that I'm a pastor by occupation? That that's my day job, all right? Nope, won't do it. All right, will you forget about that? No. And will you remember that I'm a Christian? I, I got saved just like many of you. Uh, I got saved out of some a bad life, a very, very bad life. Uh, I got saved in a motel room, not a hotel room. Let me make that clear. It was a motel room. It was called Jake's Motel, room 12. Uh, Jake's um, has no stars. <laughs> but they did provide pets. So anyway, uh, I got saved, and God just radically changed my life. And so what I'm going to share with you today, I believe, is the most important thing that I could share with you, that God did something. So the most important thing isn't this message of the gospel. It's something about you. Huh. In my heart that's changed me forever. So Luke chapter 9, uh, look at verse 12. Luke 9, verse 12. It says, When the day began to wear away, the twelve came and said to him, Send the multitude away, that they may go into the surrounding towns and country and lodge and get provisions, for we are in a deserted place here. But he said to them, You give them something to eat. And they said, Well, we have no more than five loaves and two fish unless we go and buy food for all these people. For there were about 5,000 men. Now, it's important to note in Jewish culture the way they counted crowds is they only counted the men. And what they were doing was they were actually counting families. So when the Bible says there were about 5,000 men, uh, most theologians believe there are probably around 20,000 people, ladies and kids and all as well. Most theologians also believe this is the largest crowd Jesus ever spoke to, uh, much larger than the Sermon on the Mount. So I want you to just think about not 5,000 people, but 5,000 families, all right? It helps us understand this miracle. There were about 5,000 men. Then he said to his disciples, make them sit down in groups of 50. And they did so and made them all sit down. And then he took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he blessed and broke them and gave them to the disciples to set before the multitude. So they all ate 
and were filled, and 12, notice this number, 12 baskets of the leftover fragments were taken up by them. Now, I don't know if you ever thought about this. Why were there 12 baskets left over? Well, I, personally, my personal opinion, I believe Jesus wanted each disciple to have a doggy bag. That's just my personal opinion. All right, here, here's what I like to do with the Bible. I like to put myself in the story. Uh, instead of just reading this and then going on, I like to pretend like, how would I have responded if I had been there that day? So that's what I want you to do today, all right? I want you to pretend like you are one of the 12 disciples and uh, you are on the Messiah search committee. And uh, you found this guy, seems to be a good candidate to be a Messiah. Uh, he's uh, walking on the water. He's, he's uh, raising the dead. He's healing the sick. Uh, he teaches. He knows the Bible better than anybody, you know, and he's just, just great. So you think this is it. So you have a high attendance weekend, and you send out mass emails, and you tweet about it, and the biggest service you've ever had. And, uh, you know, service starts 11.15, you know, and you have some great worship like we did today. And then the guest Messiah gets up and starts preaching. And about 12.15, you know, 12.30, he ought to be wrapping up. 1 o'clock, still going. 2 o'clock, still going. 3 o'clock. I mean, you've already missed the first game. 4 o'clock, 5 o'clock. Six o'clock. I'm not exaggerating. The Bible says this. Look at verse 12 again. It says, when the day began to wear away. You know what that means in the Greek? In the Greek, that means when the day began to wear away. <laughs> Funny, yeah. I mean, it's late. And so, yeah, here, in my, again, I'm just using my holy imagination. I think the disciples formed a little committee. And I think they kind of got together and said, well, what are we going to do? I mean, it's the largest car I've ever had, and the guy just won't shut up. I mean, it's incredible. Well, I mean, I mean, he's good, but nobody's this good. And I'll tell you, if I don't eat soon, I'm going to die. I, I will die if I don't get something to eat soon. And I think one of them said, that's it. Well, what's it? Let's tell him that the people are getting hungry. He seems to care a lot about the people. He doesn't seem to care much about us, but he does seem to care a lot about the people. So now let's pretend that you get elected the spokesperson, all right? And so Jesus is up there. Once you see this in your mind, Jesus is up there preaching, thousands of people, and you walk up to him while he's speaking. That's the inference in Scripture here. So you say, um, or excuse me, excuse me, excuse me. Uh, Lord, we were, uh, t- boy, this has been good today. I tell you, this has just been so good. Uh, this series of messages that you're bringing all in one day. Uh, it's just been great. Um, but we feel like... Interesting handling of the text, don't you think? That the people are getting hungry. Now, we could go all night. I tell you, it's been that good, Lord. Um, but um, we're outside of town, and the restaurants are going to be closing pretty soon. So we were thinking you all just kind of you know, wrap it up and uh, for the people's sake. So Jesus said, you're, you're concerned that you feel like the people are hungry. Yes, Lord, it's all about the people. It's all about the people. Now, notice the text doesn't say any of this. At this point, we're just engaging in pretty wild imagination stuff. And then he says this, look, verse 13. But he said to them, well, then you give them something to eat. Excuse me? 
Yeah, you and your little group over there, you're concerned about the people. Why don't you give them something to eat? Didn't go as you planned, did it? <laughs> so now you've got to report to the committee. So you go back over and kind of like this, and they say, well, did you tell them the people were hungry? Yes, yes, I, sa I said those words exactly. I said the people are hungry. Well, is he going to dismiss the service? Well, what did he say? <laughs> what? He said for us to give them something to eat. What? 20,000 people here, and there's some little kid that snuck back in town during part of this message and came back, and he's walking by, and he's got a long John Silver's bag, you know, and he kind of opened up. He ordered the two-piece meal with extra rolls. <laughs> Two pieces of fish and five rolls. And you open up, and, of course, Peter just grabs it. Oh, stop it, Peter, stop it. That's all we have. And then someone says, that's it. What's it? Let's tell Jesus this is all we have. And then he'll dismiss the service. Now, think about it. See, we don't think about this. If you had told Jesus that you had two pieces of fish, five pieces of bread, 20,000 people, wouldn't you have thought he'd dismiss the service? So you're the spokesperson, so you... Um, you know, in a moment ago we talked. I was telling you how good the message was. And um, I mentioned to you about, you know, the people are hungry. And you, you, you said for us to give them something to eat. And uh, we, we've been working on that. And, um, but all we have is, is two pieces of fish and, and five rolls. And uh, that, that's all we have. So we're thinking that we should go with our original idea and, and wrap it up and dismiss the service. And Lord, it's okay. You have two pieces of fish and five rolls. Well, actually four and a half. Peter ate some. I, <laughs> I, I, he's the one that took the kid's meal too, Lord. I didn't do that. Okay. All right. Let's see. You got two pieces of fish and almost five rolls. I, I know how Peter is. Um, okay. Yeah. Yeah. That, that'd be great. Have them sit down in groups 50. Excuse me. Yeah. Yeah. That'd be fine. Have them sit down in groups 50. Now, have you ever thought about this? getting 20,000 people to sit down in groups of 50. I, I, I don't know about you, but have you ever worked with people? <laughs> I mean, people are hard to work with, aren't they? So could, could you sit down, please, in groups of 50? You got some guy saying, you going to give me some? Yeah, he seems to be exegeting the, the lines of words between the words. You, you see what I'm saying? Something to eat? <laughs> Save one of them rolls, Pete. <laughs> could you please just sit down in groups of 50? So now... Again, my whole imagination, I feel like that the disciples figured it out. I really do. I think that... I feel like, okay, now we're doing exegesis by feelings, okay. That they figured out how they thought he was going to do it, but it's actually not how he did it. I think they remembered in, in Kings, there's a story about Elisha that fed 100 men with 12 loaves of bread. And I think one of them said, hey, you remember that story about Elisha? Man, we've got someone greater than Elisha. I'll bet you that when he prays over it, it's going to grow right there in our hands. I'll bet you. And I think Peter probably said, hey, give, give me a piece of bread. Give me one. Here, pray for mine first. Pray for mine first. Now, I know that I pick on Peter in messages. I know that. But I do it because I feel like I'm a lot like Peter in, in, in the bad way. I don't know if you ever noticed, but... But Peter was always saying the wrong thing at the wrong time. Have you ever noticed that? It's the Mount of Transfiguration. 
Jesus is saying there, Jesus is transfigured or, or glorified in front of them. Moses and Elijah appear and start talking to Jesus. And Peter says, it's a good thing I'm here. It didn't matter that Peter was there. And God had actually interrupted him from heaven. God said, this is my beloved son. And in Matthew, he says, in whom I'm well pleased. Here he says, hear him. In other words, shut up, Peter. <laughs> and, and, and then Jesus comes walking to him on the water. He walks, he's walking on the water. He says, don't be afraid, it's me. Here, Peter says, Lord, if it's you. <laughs> Jesus thinking, I just, I just said, it's me, you know. And then the one time he does get it right, I think Jesus' response is funny. Jesus said, who do men say that I am? And they said, some say Elijah, some say John the Baptist, some say one of the prophets. He said, who do you say that I am? Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus says, flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you, but my father in heaven. In other words, this is a miracle. <laughs> this is a miracle, Peter. You got it right? That's a miracle. Okay, all right. So I think Peter probably grabbed a piece of bread and said, here, here, pray over mine. Lord, pray over mine first. Here, pray over mine. John, just watch. Just watch. Watch the bread. Watch the bread. Pray over mine. But it didn't multiply when Jesus prayed over it. Verse 16 says, he blessed them and broke them and gave them to the disciples set before the multitude. Here's what actually happened. You can just see Peter said, pray over mine. Pray over mine. Jesus takes this piece of bread from Peter, lifts it up and says, Father, Bless it, breaks it, and gives half of it back to Peter. Uh, are you through praying? And Jesus says, yes, it's blessed. Go give it away. You want to pray some more? No, Peter, and, and don't miss this right here. It's blessed. Uh, don't miss that. It, that's not in the text. You just inserted it in there. Again, this is a five pretzel sermon. It's blessed. Now go give it away. Personally, I think Peter walked up to the first person and said something like this. Take just a little piece. <laughs> what would you have said? Take a little piece. It goes out there. Take a little piece. Take a little piece. Take a little piece. Little piece. I said, little piece, you pig. What's wrong with you? I said, take a little piece here, little piece. He gets down to the last person. He has a sliver left in his hand, and the bread grows in Peter's hands. It doesn't say this in the text. All of this is stuff that he's just making up. He says, you, you can have some more. <laughs> you have to catch this. The miracle did not happen in the master's hands. It happened in the disciples' hands. It happened when they obeyed. So there are two principles of multiplication of the story. They're so simple. Here's number one. If you're taking notes, I want you to write this down. If you're not taking notes, write this down. All right? Here's number one. It has to be blessed before it can multiply. It has to be blessed before it can multiply. Just think about it. If they what has to be blessed before it can multiply. Notice what he's done here. He's read a narrative text from Luke chapter 9 about the feeding of the 5,000. He's completely inserted his own stuff into the text. 
He's allegorized it now, and now he's going to apply it to what? I don't know. This text isn't about any old thing. Jesus blessed the fish and the loaves, and everybody ate. So he's somehow seeing a principle here that applies to other things. Hmm. They took the five loaves and the two fish. What if the disciples, instead of taking it to Jesus to bless it, what if they had just started giving it out? It never would have multiplied. It is the blessing of Jesus on our resources that caused them to multiply. Um, whoa, 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 whoa. Now we've just applied this to our resources. We've brought this into the 21st century. And he just made the statement, it's the blessing of our resources. Is that what this story's about? And here's how we get the blessing according to Scripture. And it's Here's how we get the blessing. He's twisting this really badly. It's a whole other message, but I just want to hit on it for a moment. The Bible says that when we give the first of our income to God, the rest is blessed. When we give the Okay, notice what he just did here. He took now a, a verse that supposedly has to do with giving money, you know, tithing to God, and he's using the, he's connected this now with the feeding of the 5,000 in order to create some kind of a binding universal spiritual principle vis-a-vis law or quid pro quo that, uh, you know, this is just a horrible mangling of God's word. The feeding of the 5,000 has nothing to do with tithing, nothing to do with it. The first portion, this is what tithing is all about. It's actually not about giving 10%, even though it is a percentage, a 10%, but it is not about that. It's about giving the first 10% to God. See, if you say, okay, here, here's the mortgage company, and here's car, and here's groceries and all, and God, here's the leftover for you. That's not tithing. Tithing is when we give the first to God, and God blesses the rest. How, how did we get to tithing? I have never heard the feeding of the 5,000 applied to tithing. This is a supreme manipulation and Bible twist. And so many times we don't understand that, and we have all these arguments against tithing, Old Testament and the law. Jesus himself said, you ought to tithe. That ought to be enough for you if you've been saved by Jesus. Jesus himself said that. And the Bible tells us in Hebrews... Uh, give us a verse. Uh, where did Jesus say we have to tithe? Hebrews 7, again, this is New Testament, that when we tithe, Jesus himself, again himself, receives our tithes and blesses them. I know a lot of people who give, but they give a little here and a little there and a little here. They don't give the first 10% of their income to the local church. Let me explain. Okay. Hebrew, did, hang on a second here. I'm going to back this up and make sure I got the, the passage. Hang on. I'm going, to, I'm going to back it up maybe about 30 seconds, maybe a little bit more. Hang on. I want to make sure I got his argument. You say, okay, here, here's the mortgage company, and here's car, and here's groceries and all, and God, here's the leftover for you. That's not tithing. Tithing is when we give the first to God, and God blesses the rest. And so many times we don't understand that, and we have all these arguments against tithing, Old Testament, and the law. Jesus himself said, you ought to tithe. That ought to be enough for you if you've been saved by Jesus. Jesus himself said that. And the Bible tells us in Hebrews 7, again, this is New Testament, that when we tithe, Jesus himself, again himself, receives our tithes and blesses them.
Okay, let me read Hebrews chapter 7. He said it's in Hebrews 7. By the way, I don't see any red letters in Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of every of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he's also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues as a priest forever. See how great this man was, who, to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descendant from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. Now, notice, I'm going to point something out here. This passage is pointing to the historical narrative in Genesis, where Abraham gave a tithe of what he uh, of the spoils that he took in in conquering the the people who had taken the cities of the plain into captivity and he conquered those kings and set them free and uh, Abraham gave a tithe to Melchizedek of the spoils notice that what's going on here is this is an argument talking about the Melchizedek priesthood that Jesus holds because that's where Melchizedek king of Salem king of uh, peace shows up um, and uh, this is not an argument that says that when you give the tithe, God blesses it. That's not what was said at all in Hebrews 7. You think there's a reason why he just made reference to Hebrews 7 but didn't actually read any verses or sentences from Hebrews 7? It's because this is a five-pretzel manipulative money sermon. We continue. I know a lot of people who give, but they give a little here and a little there and a little here. They don't give the first 10% of their income to the local church. Let me explain something to you. Your income, listen, will never multiply. The only way... Oh, man. So now the the principle of multiplication. See, if you give 10%, the first 10% to your local church, well, because of the story of the fish and the loaves from the feeding of the 5,000, that means that if you do that, God's going to multiply your other resources. That's what he just said. The Bible does not teach this at all. This guy has just made up his own doctrine. And it's manipulative and it's all about money. It will ever multiply is that Jesus blesses it. It has to be blessed before it can multiply. And here's number two, real simple. It has to be given away before it can multiply. It has to be given away before it can multiply. Now, here's how God did this in my life. When, when, when uh, I got saved, Debbie and I were already married. 
here's how God did this in my life. Now, personal testimony trumps the clear teaching of the Word of God. He has not taught us God's Word. This is five pretzel Bible twisting going on here. Married. We'd been married nine months when I got saved. And I got saved, as I said, in this motel room. And we start going to church and uh, a few years, I think, I don't know whether it was a few months or a few years, I think it was actually a year or two, uh, I heard my first message on tithing. And uh, when I got saved, uh, Debbie and I were making $600 a month combined income. Actually, she made 400 a month. I made 200 a month, which I want every one of you here to know. You are looking at a man that is gifted enough to make $200 a month without Jesus. I just want you to know that's how gifted I am. I can make $200 a month on my own. So anyway, we, we get saved. I get saved. She's already saved. I get saved. And so I hear this message on tithing. Well, I don't know enough to argue. The guy reads the Bible. He reads all these scriptures. Give the first 10% to God. So we gave $60 that day. $600 a month, $60. The next day, my boss calls me in and says to me, I'm going to give you a $200 a month raise. Doubles my income one day. And I'll never forget this, what he said. He said, and I have no idea why I'm doing this. You see, it's just like the loaves and the fishes. He was obedient, so God, the principle of multiplication was applied to his income. Ta-da! Yeah, this falls under the logical fallacy known as post hoc ergo poppycock. Yeah, after this, therefore, because of this. Well, the Lord starts blessing us. And then I, I start speaking. I start speaking in churches, and I start doing youth functions and, and sharing my testimony. And go, I start going to school, Bible college, and learning about God's Word. And I'm preaching in churches and all. And the Lord says to me one day, I want you to get your finances in order. So, so apparently God talks to him directly, too. So I can bless them. Can I say something? God cannot bless something that's not in order. Really, God cannot bless something that's not in order. Hmm, what does that even mean? And where does the Bible say that? Where does it say God cannot bless something unless it's in order? You know, for instance, I mean, let me give you an example. I mean, we've got Jesus going around forgiving prostitutes of their sins, and their lives weren't even in order, yet Jesus blessed them and told them that their faith had saved them and that their sins were forgiven. Hmm. Doesn't sound like he required them to get their lives in order first, does it? We continue. He can't. It's totally against his nature. He can only bless something that's in order. And the Bible... Where does it say that? You just made a statement about God, that it's completely against his nature. Where in the Bible does it say that? Well, tells us how to handle our finances. And so I said, well, Lord, what do you want me to do? He said, get out of debt. Number one said, get out of debt. So I said, okay, so we sold. So God can't bless you unless you get things in order and get out of debt, number one. Sold the car that we had the big payment on, and we bought a car for cash, a 1973 Ford station wagon with 130,000 miles on it. We paid $750 for that car. But we love that car. We really. You're holy, yeah. Really love that car because we knew we were in the middle of God's will financially for us. And there's a lot of people that never have that feeling, they never know the joy of that. That's right. We want to be just like you. And so we prayed over the car. Uh, we anointed it with oil about a quarter a week. And, uh, <laughs> and we drove that car. And then the Lord said to me, all right, here's the second thing. Don't manipulate. 
Number one, get out of debt. Number two, don't manipulate. God. Well, he's still doing that. If God told him not to manipulate, he's not obeying God because this is total manipulation, manipulation of God's word and manipulation of these people. God never blesses manipulation. So I said, uh, well, what do you want me to do, God? He said, well, you know, you travel and speak to these churches, and that was my full-time job. I would travel and speak, and in, in those days it was very um, normal a pastor would call and say, hey, can you come do a youth revival or something? I'd say, yes, we'd work out a date. And then he'd say, what are your financial requirements? And the Lord told me, he said, from now on, you say, I have no financial requirements. And so I said, okay. So a pastor called, and he, we worked out a date, and then he said, what are your financial requirements? I said, I have no financial requirements. He said, well, what do you mean you have no financial requirements? I said, I mean, I have no, no financial requirements. He said, well... What do you mean you have no financial requirements? I said, I mean, I have no financial requirements. That's what I'm... I just want to remind you all, this story is actually not found in the Bible. I mean, to come to the church, I have no financial requirements. And he said, uh, he just didn't get it. He said, is, is your dad wealthy? And I said to him, yes, as a matter of fact, he is. Not the one on earth, but... Uh, one in heaven is. This other pastor, he couldn't get it either. He said, well, what are you going to do? He said, how will you live? How will you live? He said, what are you going to do? He said, if you came to our church and preached and we didn't give you an offering, how would you live? And I said something, I meant it right, but it didn't come out right. You know, I said to him, I said, I said, listen, if I come preach at your church and you don't give me an offering, I said, God will take care of me and he'll take care of you. He said, well, we'll give you an offering. I said, no, no, no. I didn't, I didn't mean it like that. I didn't mean that. What, what I meant was God will provide for me and, and he'll provide for you. And by the way, you can relax. You're not going to give me an offering today, all right? I've never preached on giving. Listen to this. In over 25 years, I've never preached on giving and asked people to give me an offering. Please understand, I give more than most of you here. There's, and I don't have a big salary either. I've given more than I've made. He is so holy. I mean, I hope I, I, I grow up to be just as holy as he is. And you say, well, how do you do that? Well, the book, The Blessed Life. It's gone all over the world, millions and millions of dollars, and I gave every bit of it to the church. So I'm telling you, I am preaching to you something. I live. I live this. And so then the Lord said, all right, get out of debt. Uh, don't manipulate. And then the third thing he told me was give. And I remember when he said give. That's all he said, give. And, and I said to him, well, Lord, I do give. He said, no, no, you return. Now listen to me carefully. I said, Lord, I give because I give 10%. I give my tithe. He said, no, no, tithing is not giving. Tithing is returning. Because the tithe... Now, apparently, see, God told him this directly. Tithe isn't giving, it's returning. This isn't the Bible, but God told him directly. According to Scripture, belongs to the Lord. And the Bible tells us that when we give it to the house of the Lord, it's blessed. Listen to this. And when we keep it in our house, it's cursed. It's the first check I write. Every time I get paid, the very first income that leaves my check, checking account is the tithe. Because it's blessed when I give it, it's cursed when it stays in my account. And because it's consecrated or set apart to the house of the Lord. That's Joshua 6. It's set apart to the house of God. And so anyway, the Lord said, I want you to give. And, and you know why tithing is not giving? God doesn't use the word give when he talks about tithing. He always uses the word bring. You want to know why? Because you can't give what doesn't belong to you. You can only bring it to the house of God. So the Lord said, I want you to give. And so I said, well, Lord, um, how will I know when to give or where to give or how much to give? And listen, this very simple answer. This is for all believers. He said, I'll tell you. I'll tell you. See, the Bible says, this, Jesus said this in John 10, my sheep hear my voice. By the way, he didn't say my shepherds. 
hear my voice. That doesn't mean that I can't hear God because I'm a minister, but I'm a sheep before I'm a shepherd. So my sheep hear my voice. So if you're a sheep, you can hear God. So there you go. If you're a sheep, automatically you're going to hear God's voice, just like he does. And you're going to get extra biblical revelation telling you things about tithing that are not actually in the Bible. But don't worry, God will tell you directly. Because you're, if you're one of his sheep, you'll hear him tell you all of these principles about tithing. So the Lord said, I'll tell you. So that's okay. So I went to this church not long after that, and I had one meeting for the whole month. Now remember, this is how all of our income came in through me traveling and preaching, and they would give an honorarium or an offering or something, even though I never asked for it. And so I went to church, and it was a church of about 60 people. So, I mean, just basically a little bitty section like this, 60 people, and it was a Sunday night service only, and it wasn't a whole week meeting, and it was the only service I had for the whole month, only meeting I had the whole month. That was it. And so I go, I said, I have no financial requirements, and the pastor gets up and he tells the church, this is the first minister that's ever said, I don't have any financial requirements for coming. He said, I've never heard that before. He said, I'd like us to just give as the Holy Spirit leads us. So these 60 people gave an offering. He comes to me afterwards, the pastor, and he's so excited. He said, look at this. He said, we've never given this much in our whole life. He said, look. And I looked down to check, and it was enough for the whole month. Now, at this time, I also had staff, and I had an office, and I had people that were helping me, and it was enough for all expenses for the whole month, not just for Debbie and me. And I looked at it, and I thought, wow, Lord, you're so good. You are so good, God. And right when I'm thinking this, I glance over the pastor's shoulder, and at the back of the church is a missionary that spoke right before I spoke, and this voice said to me, give him the offering. And I remember exactly what I thought to this day. I, I thought, get behind me. Hmm. Okay. He's Satan. <laughs> uh, that's not God. That's not God. That, that's not you. In case you don't know, that's not you, God. And the Lord said, give him the offering. Give him the offering. Give him the offering. And I kept hearing, and I remember saying to the Lord, Lord, you're not thinking clearly. <laughs> this, this, is, this is the exact... Okay, this is not biblical preaching here at this point. You see what's going on here? These are all stories that he's making up. This is our budget. I don't have another meeting. And the Lord said, give him the ice. And the Lord said, I told you, I'd tell you when to give and where to give. I told you. Now give. So I took the check and I endorsed it. And I folded it in half so he wouldn't see how much it was. It's a very large amount. And I went to the missionary and I said, God told me to uh, give this to you, uh, but don't tell anyone I gave it to you and don't look at it till after you leave. So he left. So then we go out to eat with some people from the church, went to a pizza place. And um, there was, uh, I remember there were six couples total, Debbie and me, and then five other couples. So there were like six ladies sitting on one end of the table and then like um, uh, the six guys on the other end. And all of a sudden, these four guys, they got to talking about something. And the guy across the table from me, he just kind of leaned like this, you know, over to me. And so, you know, I kind of leaned in. <laughs> I didn't know what he was going to say, you know. And all of a sudden, he said, how much was the love offering? Just like that. And so I told him. I told him the amount. And then he said to me, where's the check? Just like that. And I know you're supposed to tell the truth, but I didn't want anyone to know. And God had told me, don't manipulate. So I didn't want to tell him that I, I gave it away. And I couldn't think. And I'm thinking, who is this? Why is he asking me this? And all, you know, so I, I just, I, first thing came to mind, I said, Debbie has it. <laughs> and he said to me, go get it. I want to see it. So I said, okay. So I got up and I walked down where Debbie was seated and I, I leaned down. And I said, how's your pizza? Good? Okay. Good. 
what else is there to say? You know, there's no check. So I go back. I can't again. I know you're supposed to tell the truth, but I don't want to. I don't know who this guy is, and I don't want to tell anyone what I did. I want to say I gave it away. You know. So I, I, I just I couldn't think. So I said, "It's in the car." <laughs> and he said, "It's not in the car." So I said, "Where is it?" <laughs> you, know, you know so much, pal. You know. I started getting a little frustrated. I don't know why this guy's grilling me like this, you know. So I said, uh, he said, it's not in the car. He said, you gave it away, didn't you? And I said, yes, I gave it away. How do you know that? Because I made sure no one saw me give it to him and that the building was empty when I gave it to him. I said, how do you know that? He said, God told me. God told me. And he reached in his pocket and he pulled out a check that he had written before he came to the service that night. And he opened it up like that, and he held it out. It was made out to our ministry, and it was exactly 10 times the amount of the check I had just given away. Exactly. Look how holy he is. See, it all multiplied just like the loaves and fishes. The moral of the story is your, your finances can't be multiplied until you start tithing too. He held it out like this, and he's got the top of the check, and he held it out. He said, here, here, take this. And I reached out and took the bottom, but he wouldn't let it go. <laughs> and I realized he wanted to say something to me, so I'm holding the bottom of the check. He's holding the top of it. And I looked across the top of the check right in his eyes, and he said, God's about to teach you about giving so you can teach the body of Christ. And he let the check go. And God started teaching us about giving. And we, you got to understand, we took that money, and we said, this is God's money. God, what do you want us to do? You have to understand, please hear me. God gives us an opportunity to be a good steward, and most of us blow it. And I've blown it too. I'm not, I'm not perfect, but, but if we'll just be a good steward, then he'll give us more. Because if you ever, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but here, over here are all the resources in the world. God owns everything in the world and out of this world for that matter. He, he owns Mars. I don't know if y'all know, but he owns Mars too. So God owns it all. He's got all of it, all of it right here. Okay, over here, all the hurting people. All the people that need to be fed, all the people need the gospel preached to them, all the missionaries need to be sent, all the buildings need to be started, all the campuses need to be started. Here are all the needs over here. All the needs over here, all the resources, all the supply. You ever thought about this? What's in between? You are. You are. God works through people. So God, he gives us some resources, and God years ago, over 25 years ago now, gave Debbie and me hundreds of dollars and we funneled it to people that needed it. And then he gave us thousands, and then tens of thousands, and then hundreds of thousands, and now millions of dollars. By God's mercy and grace, our church last year gave $7 million to hurting people because God said, I found some, I found some people, and there's a whole bunch of us around, just people that will just be faithful. I'm telling you, you just can't believe what a fun life you could have. You know, when God See, your life can't be fun unless you tithe. Okay. God told me, trust me, don't ask for any money. And we've never, we, don't, we don't have mailing lists. We don't do any of that stuff. We didn't do any of it back then. When God said, don't do this, <laughs> this guy calls me up and says, would you come and preach? And he says, what are your financial requirements? I have no financial requirements. I said, he said, well, that's good because I don't even know if we could pay your gas. I'll never forget him saying that. I don't even know if we could pay your gas. I said, it's okay. God takes care of us. We get in that 73 Ford station wagon. We're driving from Texas to Oklahoma. I stop at a gas station. I go in to pay for it, and the lady says, it's taken care of. 
I said, what do you mean taking care of? She said, well, I own the gas station. When you pulled in, God told me I was to fill your car up with gas. And I went back out and I got in the car. I said, Lord, I sure like doing it better your way than my way. And I've been living this way a long time. God would speak to us about giving and things. One time, the Lord said to me, I want you to sell your van. And, I, you know, you can get prideful in your gift because we've given away so many cars. I have no idea how many cars my wife and I have been able to give to people uh, at this point. When we, we stopped counting at 16. Who is this sermon all about, anyway? Um, hmm. It's about Robert Morris. And that was 11, 12 years ago. Uh, our, by the way, our church, our church gave 72 cars to people last year in 12 months because this is contagious. Because, listen, God's the one has got all the resources. He's just looking for someone he can funnel them through to the people that need them. And so, anyway, the Lord said to me one time, I want you to sell your van. I said, Lord, um, you know, I don't, I don't really like to sell vehicles. I like to give them away. And that's what I do. I give. He said, you obey. That's what you do. Yeah, God is the uh, the big old, you know, demander. You, you do this or else. You do this and you know, the cosmic quid pro quo. Now, we're not hearing about the gospel, repentance of sins, the forgiveness of sins. No, all we're hearing is all of these principles that you need to apply, and then God will take notice of what's going on. And you can see the miraculous happen, just like Robert Morris. Is he so holy? I mean... Yeah, he preaches so much about himself that uh, I don't believe what Perry Noble said about him being humble. Um, this is not. This doesn't strike me as a man who's humble. He seems to be self-obsessed. I tell you, sell it. You sell it. I said, okay. I said, what do you want me to sell it for? He said, twelve thousand dollars. That's on a Saturday. On Sunday, I'm in church. I'm worshiping God just like we were today. I'm worshiping God. This guy walks up to me during church and says to me, "Hey, you want to sell your band?" I said, uh, yeah, I do. He said, 12000 I said, uh, yeah. He writes me a check, takes my keys. We had to get a ride home from church. <laughs> That's on a Sunday. On Monday, we get on a plane, go to Costa Rica. The missionary picks us up. We're riding an old rickety van. If you've ever been on the mission field, you know, we're riding an old rickety van. We're bouncing around. There's a hole in the floor, and the exhaust is coming up through the floor where we're sitting. And I said to this missionary, why don't you get you a new van? He said, I'm about to. He said, last week, God spoke to me, and he said, stop right there. And I went over, and there was a van for sale. And God said, I'm going to give you that van. I said, how much is it? Anyone want to take a guess? Uh, $12,000. He said, 12000 I said, turn around. Let's go get the van. I'm telling you, this is a fun life to live. And then one day I'm sitting in a chair and I'm reading Philippians 2. I'm reading about how God gave everything. Jesus laid it down. He laid down everything. He gave us everything. And I thought, it's just amazing. Lord, you'd give me everything. And just like this, the Lord said, would you give me everything? And I knew immediately he meant everything in our personal checking, everything in the personal savings, everything in the ministry checking, everything in the ministry savings, all the retirement we had, both vehicles. You know, I, I heard a rumor, and I don't know if it's true, uh, but you know, somebody from Newspring contacted me and told me that uh, you know things are t- financially tight there at uh, Newspring. Makes me wonder if if uh, that's the reason why this um, uh, self obsessed person is uh, being brought in to manipulate God's word and manipulate these people into believing that. 
you know, they, they too can have all of these amazing things happen to them. If only they will just obey enough. God will speak directly to them and, you know, and they'll have millions of dollars multiplied into their accounts and stuff. Hmm. And the house. Now, here's what I thought. I thought, thank you. That's what I said. Thank you. I said, you probably don't ask very many people this, do you? Yes, Lord, I'd love to give you everything. You gave me everything. I'd love to give you everything. Thank you for asking me. So Debbie and I sat down and we talked about where all the money would go, talked about where the cars would go, and we gave our house to a pastor that had five kids that didn't have a house. And that's fun, by the way, giving the keys to a house to someone. We gave it all away. The next day I was adding it all up, you know, in my mind. I, I mean, it was a lot of money, pretty extravagant gift. And I thought, wow, it's pretty amazing. And I had this thought. And the Lord said to me, what are you thinking? I said, nothing. <laughs> you know, if you don't tell him what you're thinking, he doesn't know. Really? And where's that in the Bible? And I said, oh, no, it's, I don't want to tell you, Lord. He said, no, what are you thinking? I said, oh, I think, well, I said, you know that old saying, you can't outgive God? The Lord said, yeah, I've heard that. I said, well, I think I did. I said, I mean, I don't want you to feel bad or anything. I mean, you blessed us and all, and, you know, but, but I mean, the house, I mean, the retirement, I mean, I said, this time, I said, I, I think I've got you. I don't know why I use that phrase, got you. I think I've got you. The Lord said, you think you've got me? Just like that, and the phone rang. I picked up the phone. This guy on the other end of the phone said, hey, Robert, God told me to help you with your transportation. Now, here's what I thought. I thought, he's going to give us a car. That's what I thought, he's going to give us a car. I just gave away both my cars, and I've already given nine cars at that time, and I gave my house. And so even if he gives me a car, I still got you. I mean, thanks for the car, but I still got you. I said, well, what did the Lord tell you to do? The guy on the, plane, on the phone said, he told me to buy you an airplane. This guy sounds like a health and wealth prosperity charlatan. Why is he being brought in to uh, preach at New Spring? Hmm? And he said, I'm going to pay for the hangar, I'm going to pay for the insurance, I'm going to pay for the fuel, I'm going to pay for the maintenance, and I've hired a pilot, and I'm going to pay his salary, and here's his name and his number, and you just call him and tell him where you want to go and when you want to go. And the Lord said, gotcha. <laughs> now, now listen to me, listen, listen. Call me skeptical. Um, I, I bet you some of the details of these stories don't really line up with reality. This is not a story about uh, giving you get an airplane. Okay, you got to hear me. Listen, I gave the plane away. I don't have the plane. I don't have a private plane. You, you understand? I flew here yesterday. Debbie and I flew here the same way you fly, like this between two fat guys, okay? <laughs> the plane's not the best part of the story. Here's the best part. The next day, I'm sitting in my chair. I'm reading the Bible. I'm reading about Solomon, most famous story about Solomon. God comes to Solomon and says to him, ask, ask anything you want. Can you imagine God saying that to you? He said it to me three times now. I mean, he only said it to Solomon once, but he said it to Robert Morris three times. Oh, wow, what a saint. He said, ask anything you want. Now, I'm reading this, and I thought, Lord, why would you say that to him? And he said, go back and read what happened before I said it. I went back and read it. Here's what happened. (laughs) 
Solomon was inaugurated king of Israel that day. It was tradition for the king to sacrifice one bull. Do you know how many Solomon sacrificed? 1,000 bulls. Ah, see, that's the reason why Solomon bought that blessing. Got it. Okay. 1,000. And the Lord said to me, I only say ask anything to extravagant givers. So there you go. I mean, it's not found in the Bible, but God revealed specifically to Robert Morris that if you are an extravagant giver, then he's going to visit you, and he's going to ask you, just like he asked Solomon, ask anything you want of me. And see, Robert Morris has been so generous with his finances and such an extravagant giver. God hasn't asked him that once, not twice, but three times. He said, I would never say that to selfish people because you can't trust selfish people. I can't trust them, but I can trust givers. And I'm just sitting there reading that story, and all of a sudden, and this is the first time it happened to me, the Lord said to me, ask. Ask anything you want. And I knew immediately what I wanted because I was a pretty bad guy before I got saved. And I said, Lord, I want for Debbie and I to be passionately in love all the days of our lives. I don't want to lose my marriage. And two weeks ago, we celebrated our 31st wedding anniversary. That's better than an airplane. It's better than a plane. Is there any reason why we should believe that this guy is really a man of God? I mean, look what he did with God's word. He's flat out lied about it. He's completely mangled it and twisted. And now we're getting direct revelation from God. All these, you better start writing this stuff down. You need to add the section to your Bible. You've got the, you know, you've got the Gospels, you've got the Book of Acts, you've got the Pauline epistles, you've got the letters of Peter and John and the Book of Revelation. You need to add another section to the back of your Bible. Uh, basically, the, you know, the, the word of the Lord that came to the prophet Robert Morris. Because, I mean, there's stuff he's saying that it doesn't appear anywhere in the Bible. You know, for instance, the principle that if you are an extravagant giver, then God will come to you and ask you, you know, ask of me anything you want. You, you, that's not in the Bible, but God told that to Robert Morris. So you need to add that to the back of your Bible in a new section of the new word of the Lord that has come to the prophet Robert Morris. I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes. Oh, man. Here comes some more manipulation. I just feel it. And I want you to just ask the Holy Spirit, just just in your heart, not out loud, just say, Lord, what are you saying to me through this message? God isn't speaking to anybody through this message. You have been lying about what God is, says and does the entire sermon. Shame on you, Perry Noble, for pulling this on your people in your congregation. Just ask him, Lord, what are you saying to me through this message? Cue sappy music. Some of you have struggled and struggled and struggled with tithing. And you've tried it and you've been on and off and on and off. And here's the number one reason people say to me that they don't tithe. They say, Pastor, I just, I just can't afford to tithe. Please hear me. If you don't hear anything else in this message, please hear this. You will never be able to afford to tithe until you tithe. Because tithing is what removes the curse. What happens is every... 
tithing, not the blood of Christ. Tithing removes the curse. Not the forgiveness of God. No, it's tithing that removes the curse. This is flat out works righteousness. This is made up law. This is made up word of God. This isn't what's revealed in the scriptures. And if you have your Bible, flip on over to Galatians, you know, the book of Galatians. I'm going to read, you know, a couple of sections from the book of Galatians. Galatians chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, an apostle not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of God, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Notice that the Apostle Paul says, God is the one who gets the glory forever and ever. Amen. Boy, Leon Morris sure does get a lot of glory in that little sermon of his, doesn't he? I mean, what an extravagant giver. Oh, I hope to be as holy as him someday. Paul continues, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another. But there are some who are troubling you and want to distort the gospel of Jesus Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one that we preach to you, let him be accursed, anathema. By the way, that means if the Apostle Paul were to appear to you or an angel were to appear to you and give you a different gospel, let that person be accursed. As we have said before, now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel that is contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. And you'll notice that the Apostle Paul, when he received his gospel, he laid it out to the other apostles who spent their the three years with Jesus, and they added nothing to his gospel. So the the other apostles confirmed the gospel that the apostle Paul was teaching. For you have heard of my former way of life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and I tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me, In order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went uh, uh, into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him for fifteen days. But I saw none of the other apostles except for James, the Lord's brother, in what I am writing to you before God I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They were only hearing that he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith that he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. Then, after fourteen years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure I was not running, nor had I run in vain." But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, 
so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Yet Notice it here, the Apostle Paul says, God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential, they added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go on to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised, Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing that I was eager to do. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in keeping with the, with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ in a servant of sin? Well, no, certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For though for, for, for through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I live in the flesh, I now live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Let me read 21 again. For I do not nullify the grace of God. It doesn't say I do not nullify the law of God. It says I don't nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no reason. Here, you remember, Robert Morris is basically preaching righteousness through obedience, not by faith. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. So let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? The answer is by hearing with faith. Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now trying to be perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and work miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Let me read Verse 5 again, does he who supplies the Spirit to you and work miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? This entire message, what you've heard is a complete mangling of God's word and an arguing that God blesses you by works of the law and works miracles among people by works of the law, not by hearing with faith. 
I mean, look at all of the obedience of Robert Morris. I mean, he's so obedient that God now blesses him with millions and gazillions of dollars in airplanes and cars and houses. Uh Uh-huh. All because he is obedient. Yet the Apostle Paul says the exact opposite. Does he who supplies the Spirit and work miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scriptures foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, In you shall all nations be blessed. So then those who are of the faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. Scripture says all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. Notice that Robert Morris's sermon basically says all you have to do to be blessed is tithe. But here Paul says all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and continue to do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. So, yeah, man, let me just read a little bit more. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant or a contract, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified or signed. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterwards, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by the promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring, that's Jesus, should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Well, certainly not. For if a law had been given by that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring and heirs according to the promise. Now, I want to reread just a smidge here. Um, and that is is that the curse here 
Galatians 3.10, all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. I want you to listen again to what Robert Morris said removes the curse. Okay, And you'll see that he, what he's teaching is in direct contradiction to the Scriptures. And I don't care if he claims to have conversations with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, and has taken Jesus out to... Uh, uh, to the Olive Garden and had dinner with him. Okay, listen again. Just ask him, Lord, what are you saying to me through this message? Some of you have struggled and struggled and struggled with tithing. And you've tried it and you've been on and off and on and off. And here's the number one reason people say to me that they don't tithe. They say, Pastor, I just, I just can't afford to tithe. Please hear me. If you don't hear anything else in this message, please hear this. You will never be able to afford to tithe until you tithe. Because tithing is what removes the curse. So tithing removes the curse. Yet the clear teaching of the word of God is this. All who rely on works of the law are under a curse. Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law. Not just tithing, all the things written in the book of the law. So here we have a man who claims to, I mean, be, well, quite the conversationalist when it comes to direct information coming from God that's not even found anywhere in the Bible. He's basically acting as a prophet, is he not? The word of the Lord that came to Robert Morris. He's acting as a prophet. He's getting special revelation directly from God. And yet when I compare what this man teaches to God's word, God's word contradicts it straight up. He says that the only way to get rid of the curse is for you to tithe. Yet scriptures teach that Christ became a curse for us by being hung on a tree, hung on a cross for our sins. That in reality, the ones who are cursed are the ones who are basically relying on works of the law, which is tithing is part of it. You get what I'm saying? What happens is every time we think we're about to get ahead, something else breaks, something else goes wrong, something else happens, and it's because, according to the Bible, there's a curse on our finances. And listen to me carefully. God is not cursing you. It's not God. We live in a cursed world. What tithing does is it brings our finances out from under the curse. So, yeah, the Bible doesn't anywhere teach this, but, you know, apparently uh, by works of the law, tithing, you now can bring your monetary resources out from under the curse so that God can multiply them. The Bible doesn't teach any of this nonsense. Shame on you, Perry Noble, for bringing this charlatan in to do what he's doing. That's what it does. It redeems our income. Oh, tithing redeems our income. Oh, seriously. Really, where does the Bible say that, Robert? When we give the first to God, God blesses the rest. So please hear me. Some of you, that's what I, I want you to make a commitment today that this next week, this next weekend, when it's time to give, you're going to start tithing because that's the only thing that will remove that curse off of you. Man, unbelievable. I mean, th- this, is, this is blasphemy. For some of you, God's speaking to you about giving extravagantly. And maybe you gave extravagantly and then all of a sudden something happened in this economy and you're kind of locked down and maybe fear set in or the joy of giving's been stolen from you and you hear my testimony and you say, man, I want to give like that again. Well, do it. Step out. God's not limited by the American economy. 
I promise you, I've given so much in the last couple of years, even since this thing started. God's blessed. And some of you, I want you to listen very carefully. Some of you, God is asking you today, today, to give the most extravagant gift that you could ever give to God. And listen to me carefully. That's not money. It's not money. It's your life. God's asking you, just like he asked me, to give everything. And I'm not talking about your money now. Forget about that for a moment. He wants you. He wants your heart. He died for you. He died for your sins on the cross. Please explain a little bit more. Because what you, you, the theology you've been preaching this entire message runs counter to the theology of the cross revealed in Scripture. And maybe this is your first time here. But I'm telling you, God, you're, you're here and you heard something. It stirred your heart today. But what stirred your heart was not the testimony, but God. And I'm asking you, would you give the most extravagant gift you could ever give God? And that's yourself. Would you give your heart to God today? You can do it right there in your seat. Pastor Perry will tell you in a moment how we can help you. We want to help you in your walk with God. And now I want to pray for you. Lord, I pray. No, you don't get to do it. Sorry. No, you are an absolute blasphemer. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. That was a five pretzel manipulative money sermon complete with direct revelation from God that contradicted God's word. So what does that mean? Robert Morris is a false prophet. The voice he's hearing isn't the voice of God. If he's hearing voices, it's the voice of Satan because his teaching is directly contradicted by what God's word says. What happened at New Spring Church on the 15th of May was a crime. A spiritual crime. Unbelievable. All right, so here's the deal. We're at the end of the program, and this is the part where I normally ask you to support us financially. I just want to remind you, this is listener-supported radio. I'm not going to give a full-blown plea right now because it doesn't seem even remotely appropriate after hearing what we just heard. I, don't, I, I can't feel good doing it. Just know that we definitely need your help. That's all I have to say. I, I'm incensed, absolutely incensed. This is a fleecing of God's people. This is a fleecing of innocent people, promising them things that God's word does not promise. Telling them that their finances are cursed and that their finances are redeemed so God can multiply them by works of the law when God's word clearly teaches the opposite. I told you yesterday, and I will make good on this promise. Robert Morris and his church are going to be a church that we're going to regularly review sermons from. Because this guy is a wolf, and his sheep's clothing barely covers his snout and his teeth. That was not the preaching of God's word that we heard. That was wolfy fleecing of God's sheep and manipulation for for basically financial gain. Unbelievable. Why on earth do anybody, does anybody in the church put up with these kinds of charlatans? I don't know. Perry Noble, you are an accomplice to this crime. 
You need to repent. That is not godly preaching. That is not biblical preaching. What you did is absolutely wrong. You need to repent and repudiate the false doctrine that was spewed from your stage. That's all I have to say about it. All right, so what'd you think? I'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me your feedback, you can. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross that frees you from the curse. It's all gift. Amen. <laughs> <laughs>